All right, why don't we open our Bibles to the book of Luke. Today is the beginning of what's historically, traditionally been called Holy Week. It is the beginning of moving on into the week whereby everything kind of climaxes in Easter Sunday. Uh, prior to Easter Sunday, of course, we have today, which is what's traditionally called as Palm Sunday. Friday, which is Good Friday. It's the day which we remember the death of Jesus. We will be gathering here on Friday at noon to uh, unite, to pray. If you don't have anything going on, if you would like to make the space and time to come join with us, it's just about 45 minutes long. Um, the whole idea is just to come, unite, to uh, tune our hearts, to think about what the whole sacrifice of Jesus' death is all about. Uh, but we also have something else that's really unique um, as a church community um, in the afternoon and the, uh, later on in the evening. So at 5.30, we are actually going to be uh, doing something with a handful of other churches, probably about eight other churches. I think I have a slide. If you guys can, there you go, cool. Um, we have a slide that basically is, it's a community prayer walk and then a community-wide Good Friday service. Um, so if, if you've been around slow for any length of time, I've been in the city for almost 25 years, this has never happened. Just FYI, this has never happened. It's the first time this has ever happened. And what I mean by this is uh, actual United Good Friday service. Um, and we've done things as a church community often. We've done prayer times. We've done worship nights. We've done outreaches. We've done United prayer gatherings and things like that. But we've never done an actual Good Friday e uh, service event like this. So if, if you're part of this, you will actually be part of something historic that God is doing in the city. Um, if, if you're unfamiliar with the fact that um, us Pastors, the leaders of uh, the churches in San Luis, uh, we, we gather monthly, we pray, we love each other, we support each other, we have each other's backs, um, and we have huge respect for each other church and community uh, that's preaching Jesus in this community, and so this is a really unique opportunity. So uh, what we'll be doing at 5.30 is gathering here, so if you, again, after work, whatever, if you have time, uh, join us, and we will either depending upon if it's raining or not raining, time-wise, we'll either walk through the neighborhood and uh, just pray as a community, or we'll just kind of pray here. And, uh, and as we unite and pray, we're going to be praying, obviously, for Easter. It's a big weekend. Of course, with it being, obviously, Cal Poly's spring break, there's a lot of people out of town, just like right now, as you can see, a lot of people out of town. But our hope is that God would use this as a, as a unique way, as the gospel goes out, people would meet Jesus. So we'll be praying for that. And then at 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock, we'll have like an hour-long service at Mount Brook Community Church, and we will unite and uh, celebrate, or remember, I should say, commemorate the death of Jesus. We'll partake of communion together. Each of the pastors that are part of the various churches will be teaching real briefly. I mean, we're talking brief, meaning like a, like a two-minute, like we were very clear, like, because you get a bunch of pastors together, we, we talk. This could be like a 10-hour service, um, but it's not. It's only been an hour or so. That means that each of us have been allocated with two minutes each. I don't know how we're going to do that, but again, that, that may be part of the, the resurrection miracle of Jesus that weekend. Um, <laughs> But again, don't miss it. It's going to be a really unique, uh, historic event for the churches. We really believe that God is doing something unique and profound, and we, we get to be part of this, so, so don't miss that. And then, obviously, Easter Sunday as we come on into, into this weekend. So my encouragement to you going into this weekend, this next weekend, I should say Sunday, begin to think about and pray who are people in your life maybe right now that either don't know Jesus or on the fringes or on the margins or kind of playing around with the idea of Christianity, whatnot. This is a unique opportunity to invite people. And again, we, we say this all the time. 
But there's two times out of the year that historically, I would say even culturally, people will come to church if you invite them. And most of us, the reason why you are here today or ever had gotten involved in a church in general is because someone invited you to come, coworker, a friend, neighbor, family member, someone invited you to come and you came. And it may have been the very invitation that transformed your life. So think about that. You have this unique opportunity. There's people in your life that maybe don't know Jesus or maybe need to be reminded of the importance and the significance of this good event of the resurrection. So think about, pray about uh, who God would have you invite. In fact, what I want to do right now before we jump in, I'm going to pray because what I want you to do right now by way of like um, an activity Think about maybe one or maybe three people right now that come to your mind that you could ask. Doesn't mean that you're going to, hope that you would, but uh, that you could ask. And I wanna pray right now that number one, God would give you boldness to ask, and number two, that they would be willing to come. Uh, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray right now, so how about we do that? So think of them, is their face in your mind? Yes? Think about them? Yes? This is where you, you give audience feedback. Yes, yes, Pastor B, or yes, Brian, yes, there we go. All right, and I'm gonna pray right now and then have their face in your mind and then we're gonna pray that A, God will give you boldness, B, that maybe they would be willing to come. So God, right now we ask you um, that you would be stirring in people's hearts um, who you are, what you've done, how you've broken into this broken world. Um, to remind people, God, of a different way of living that involves forgiveness of sin, that involves washing and renewal and new life. Um, God, we thank you. That's what the resurrection is all about. So I, I, first of all, I just pray, God, that you would help each one of us to think about those who you have put us in their life that we could ask. And yet sometimes we, we all of us, we wrestle with um, just fears, anxiety sometimes, and we just pray, God, that you would give us boldness and courage. That's exactly what you said would happen when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. We would have uh, boldness to be your witness, and God, I pray that you would give each of us just a sense of courage. Secondly, God, I just pray that you would give um, a, a response that people would say yes, that they would come, and ultimately, thirdly, God, that people, as they come, that they would truly have their hearts and minds transformed and open to what you have to show them about who you are. So God, do great things next week. We pray that you do amazing things on Good Friday and the combination of the churches coming together that you would meet and meet us in a unique way. We pray, God, as well, that you break through uh, powers and principalities and forces that are at work trying to bring division and destruction and ruin over this community and the Central Coast that we love so much, that we live, that we call home. And God, we pray that you do good things. So we invite your presence, even right now, to meet us here as we look at your word, as we consider what you've done for us. Jesus, we pray and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. So what I want to do this morning is I'm going to probably have my words brief. And if you guys hopefully have your Bibles open to the book of Luke chapter 19. And uh, today, as I mentioned, is what's traditionally called Palm Sunday. If you guys don't have Bibles, why don't you raise your hand? We have some ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, uh, keep this. It's our, it's our gift to you guys. But what I want to do this morning is I'll just kind of give you a quick little outline 
Um, I want to read the story of what we call the triumphal entry, and then we'll take a look at basically four things. I'll keep my, my words, like I mentioned, brief. We'll take a look at, first of all, um, just the significance of what's happening here. Well, let me, let me first read the story, then we'll just jump in, and then we'll take a look at what God has to speak to us today. So let's jump in by reading in the book of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. It's kind of a lengthy passage, but it... Uh, clearly articulates uh, from this author by the name of Luke this really bold and I would even say audacious activity that Jesus does literally just a week prior to his death. Here's what it says in verse 28. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem, and when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that's called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples in verse 30, he said, saying, go into a village in front of you uh, where on entering you will find a colt that's tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Then you shall say, the Lord has need of it. So these were sent and they went away and they found it just as he had told them. Verse 33, it says, and as they were untying the colt, the owners of it said, why are you untying the colt? And then they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought the colt to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on top of the colt. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks, their garments on the ground, on the road. And as they were drawing near, already on the way to and down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, they began to rejoice and they praised God with a loud voice and all with the mighty works that they had seen. And this is what they said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to him, Teacher, speaking to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. And then he said to them, I tell you that if these were silent, referring to the disciples, these very stones would cry out in praise. This is the word of God. This is a really profound story. And what I want to look at here this morning is I want to just kind of break down four basic elements of this and kind of think about this. It's kind of a journey as we look at this, um, and hopefully it'll make sense, kind of all dovetail together. Number one, I want to just take a look at the significance of the city of Jerusalem, because again, we can read this is, this is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Why is that significant? Why, why Jerusalem? Why not you know, Galilee or some of these other cities? Second thing we'll take a look at is this bold declaration or bold statement that Jesus is making. Third thing, we'll take a look at this brings us to this upside-down logic of God. What the heck's happening here in the story? Because something's happening here in the story that's so charged with this sense of, like, newness and hope. It's so charged that even the very religious leaders are, are mad. They shout at Jesus. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus, pulling Jesus aside, saying, Jesus, you've got to do something about your people because they are making bold, audacious claims just like you. Rebuke them is what they're saying. So whatever's happening here is so profound, so subversive that even the religious leaders, so you, you know for the most part religious people, it doesn't take a whole lot to bring about angst for religious people. You know that, right? 
Religious people are oftentimes ridiculously uptight, but these guys are really, really ridiculously uptight. So whatever it is that happened, uh, they are really profoundly upset with Jesus. And then finally, we'll take a look at what all of this really ultimately can mean to you and I. And, and I would almost even say how you and I can be invited into this very story that we see here kind of laid out for us. So let's first of all jump in and consider a little bit the significance of the city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's a really important city in the context of the Bible. In fact, there's, there's a whole long procession of information and history that we can look into, which we just don't have time to look at. I'll read a handful of passages. There's books that volumes of books, I would even say, that are written about the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, ironically, is literally the central city of three major world religions. This is how significant Jerusalem is. I mean, think about that. Islam, Christianity, and Judaism all trace the roots back to the city. It's a very, very significant city. And so whatever's happening here in the story, Jesus is coming into this city out of every other city. There's something significant about the city. So listen to some of the ancient passages throughout the Bible that talk about the city of Jerusalem. So number one, we know that the city of Jerusalem was basically overtaken by King David. There was, it was an ancient Jebusite. We don't really know much about Jebusites because it's an ancient civilization. It's no longer in existence today. That's why you've never met a Jebusite. Um, but David takes a city and basically claims it as their own. It becomes sort of the capital of their entire nation. So within the history, fast forward, it also becomes the very center where the temple is built. So you see a lot of not only uh, political, but also religious, also becomes the sort of economic and the militaristic center point of the entire Jewish uh, nation of the people of Israel. So Isaiah 66 says this, they will bring all your brethren from the nations, my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. So think about that. What, what, however significant is, uh, Jerusalem is, God actually describes Jerusalem as my holy hill, my holy city. Think about that. God is basically saying there's something, whatever about Jerusalem, Jerusalem belongs to me. It's mine. It's a pretty big claim, right? God, God can choose any city, but whatever reason God chooses Jerusalem says, it's my city. Psalm 135, 21 says, blessed is the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. So where does God live? According to the psalmist, apparently, and it's again, pretty bold claim, God actually lives. Yahweh lives in Zion. Isaiah 24, verse 23 says, the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem and his glory will be before all. All. Think about that. Um, in the book of Revelation, we're actually told that it's out of the city Jerusalem. There's a new Jerusalem that the prophet uh, John sees come down from heaven. And it's this idea of however significant, whatever Jerusalem is, it's this very significant city. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 17 says this, all the time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. The nations will be gathered to it in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord and they will walk any more in the stubbornness of their evil heart. So what the prophets all have identified is that even though Jerusalem is this city that God has called for himself and his place, not only his, his holiness there, his very presence there, in what context? In the context of the temple, right? The temple was this, this house 
very ornate house, if you would. Inside the temple was this place called the Holy of Holies, and it was in this very spot that it was like the hot spot of God's presence in this city, Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, like I said, is, is not, but Jerusalem also at the same time has a, has a rocky history because the, the, those, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which is sort of the, the center point of all Israel, has not always been faithful to Yahweh. So there was always this reality that in their infidelity or in their unfaithfulness, God would bring judgment upon the people of Israel. And then therefore they would be separated. They would be scattered from the holy city. And so by the time just around before Jeremiah the prophet, for example, and during the time of what's called the Babylonian exile, that this ancient Babylonian empire comes in. They take the people of Jerusalem away, all the best of the best. And that's when you come to the book of Daniel, for example. And so what you have is judgment come upon the people of Israel. They're living in exile. But the promises of the prophets was that God would one day revisit Jerusalem. That Jerusalem, though has failed and has been unfaithful to God, God will restore what has been lost in this ancient Hebrew city. Um, And other prophets, uh, prophecies also describe the fact that one day God would actually come, God himself would come back. So there was all these hopes that one day God would restore what Jerusalem has basically failed to hold on to themselves, that God would be the one to be faithful. Again, Isaiah 52 verse 9, another passage says this, break forth, shout joyfully together. You waste places of Jerusalem. Again, this is this imagery that Jerusalem, though it was this spectacular city that housed the very presence of Yahweh, becomes this wasted city. Think about that, wasted potential. Do you know anybody like that? Wasted potential. They've been given so much, so much opportunity, so much has been given to them, and yet it gets squandered. Um, that, that may be your life. That may be experiences that you've had in the past. It may be people that you know that so much has been given to them. But there's that sense of like, ah, despair. Something profound has been missed. That was the city of Jerusalem. But even in the midst of their profound loss because of their unfaithfulness, God had never given a hope on Jerusalem. It says, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. So there were all these hopes that one day God would revisit the city of Jerusalem in spite of its infidelity. Just pause and think about that. So there are all these hopes affixed to the city of Jerusalem. Now fast forward again into the story. I should say re-enter into the story. So Jerusalem at its very center point, if you want to think of it in this context, as I mentioned earlier, Jerusalem was really the, the center for politics, for religion, and economy, um, as well as military my, that's the city of Jerusalem. Now, jump into the story. Let's take a look a little bit at the declaration of Jesus because Jesus does something that's profound. So next slide. What we see with regard to Jesus is that Jesus comes into the city and he's riding on the back of a donkey. Um, slide working? No, I think it's working. They're working on it. Um, in the city of Jerusalem, uh, Jesus comes in, and I want to show you like a little picture here. So this, this, is, the, this is the city of Jerusalem. You guys might be familiar with the Dome of the Rock right down there, the bottom left-hand side of the screen. So look at number one. So number one, 
looking back at number two. So imagine if you're at one, looking at number two. That's kind of the image right there, that big image in the upper left-hand corner. Uh, the sun's setting behind the Dome of the Rock. You can probably see that up there. So that's, that's a, this is a great image right here because where one is, there's a road. I don't know if you can see it clearly, but that road basically takes you down. That's, that's typically called the, this, this road going down through what's called the Mount of Olives. You can see it's kind of a big valley. Kidron Valley is what it's called. You go into that Kidron Valley, then you go into the, the wall uh, through one of the gates of the city of Jerusalem. This would have been the very route that Jesus himself walks down. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, this, you'll get a chance to walk this. It's pretty amazing. In some ways, it's kind of a letdown because you have all these people that are selling stuff and you're constantly bombarded by people that are you know, just wanting to sell you something and whatnot. It takes away from the from the amazingness of it. But once you can kind of look past that and just realize like this is, this is the very route that Jesus would have taken in. So next slide, what we see with regard to Jesus is that he literally comes into the city, what we're told on the back of a donkey. Now this is unique because in one way it's a profound uh, fulfillment of an ancient Old Testament prophecy. But on the other hand, there are some scholars that kind of see what Jesus is doing as sort of like a parody of there's uh, about 150 or so years prior to Jesus, there's uh, these guys called the Maccabees, if you're familiar with the ancient history. Um, Israel was under uh, besiege from, um, from the Greeks, or I should say under occupation from the Greeks, and it was a horrible occupation. And there was this situation that had taken place where their most sacred temple, again, remember, God lives in Jerusalem. At least that's how the idea was. And he lived in the Holy of Holies. So you have this guy by the name of Antiochus, Epiphanes. He basically slaughters a pig on the sacred altar and then puts the blood all throughout the uh, entrance of this sacred spot where God exists. So again, it's this statement that says, you know, we hate, we despise not only you Jewish people, we, but we despise your God and we'll spill unsacred, uh, unkosher blood from an animal that you guys despise just to basically bring about desecration of your holy places. And so there was this movement by way of these guys called the Maccabees um, and they slaughtered they killed, they were out to bring blood, and it was this violent revolt, very different from Martin Luther King Jr. that was out to say, we'll protest for black causes and for the freedom of others, but we'll do it nonviolently. These guys, the exact opposite, said we will slaughter, we will kill, we will violently overthrow any oppressors. And so he comes into Jerusalem, uh, Maccabee, on, on a horse. And it was a, it was a way of basically saying, we won, we've slaughtered, we have the victory. And so 150 or so years later, here you, you see Jesus going down the exact same pathway, but not on a horse, on, on the back of a donkey, which, which some scholars kind of see this as like a parody. Jesus is like, he's playing out, but it's as if he's saying, this is, this is an inverted victory. This is not a victory by way of death and violence and slaughtering. This is a radically distinct victory. It's a victory nonetheless. And this is, this is the profound thing that we see that Jesus is doing. Because if I can put it in simple terms, what Jesus is doing is he's triumphing even before a battle. Do you see this? It's as if Jesus is walking in a town as if he owns the place. As if he's saying, the victory belongs to me. Do you realize how bold and audacious this is? Number one, 
there's, the battle has not even been fought. Number two, we don't even know what the battle is yet, because again, if you're in the story, if you're following Jesus, you have no idea what's about to happen. Jesus' main ministry was in the region of Galilee. Sometimes Jesus came into the outskirts of Jerusalem. But this is really one of the main times in which Jesus comes into Jerusalem at the feast of what's called Passover, or just before the feast of Passover. Very significant timing. Jesus is literally timing everything by the script, literally by the scripture, because that's what he's doing. So as he comes walking into or on the back of a mule coming into town, this claim would not have been missed by any of his disciples or by any of the religious leaders or anybody because we're actually told some of the details that they threw palm branches down and they shouted, Hosanna. Just again, listen to the passage here. It says uh, somewhere around verse 37. It says, and as he was drawing near already down the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples had began to rejoice and they praised God with a loud voice with mighty works that they had seen, saying, listen to what they said, blessed is the king. Blessed is the king. Not blessed is the religious leader. Not blessed or happy or how happy is the prophet. Not how amazing is Jesus the miracle worker. There's something, there's a name, there's a title which they affix to Jesus. You realize what's happening here? I mean, if you were living in this context, if you were frightened, you had every reason to be frightened. You understand this? This would be uh, equivalent to walking into either Mecca, um, which is kind of the closest thing to like a Jerusalem because it is not only a political center, it's also a religious center. It's also an economic center. Um, it would not be the same as like, like Washington, D.C., because even though Washington, D.C. is a political center, it's not a religious center. I mean, she can make an argument that it might be, but the fact of the matter is it's be like walking into one of these political, religious, economic centers of the world and saying, I'm here to take over. And, and these are all my posse. These are all my friends. They're all part of my team. And we're here to take over. I'm the king. They're proclaiming my kingdom. Do you realize that this, this amounts to high treason to the present ruling government that's in order. This, this, is, this is a radical moment. This is a radical statement and declaration that Jesus is doing here right now. And again, because the fact of the matter is, for the most part, for the most part, historically, you normally don't triumph. You don't walk around in a triumph march or victory battle until you've A, fought the battle, B, until you've won the battle. Like who walks out and saying, I won, and they haven't even fought or even won yet. Bold people, that's who, right? Um, Conor McGregor, that's who. Uh, people that have a lot of audacity, that's who. Or people that, like Jesus, they know the outcome. And this is, this is a radical situation that's happening here in this circumstance. So that's the second thing that we see is this bold declaration of Jesus, which leads me thirdly to this uh, upside down logic of God. So what's happening here? We, we have to address something of how God thinks, the way that God works. I think one of the best metaphors that I've heard to kind of unpack how God works is uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, described God's strength in two forms. He describes God's strength as the right-hand strength of God, right-handed strength of God, versus the left-handed strength of God. And right-handed strength is common strength. It's the way we typically think about strength or power or might. It's strength that, for the most part, when we think of it as a right-handed power, it's power that's direct, sometimes might even be forceful. 
right? This is like a parent looking at the child being like, what are you doing? Don't do that, you know, and the child's like, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, whatever, you know. The fact is that that's right-handed strength. There's a, direct, there's a directive. That directive is met with an immediate, like, response. Uh, it also looks like these straight lines. It looks like power oftentimes in numbers or size. In some cases, it looks like it takes the shape of military might, takes a, a shape of uh, notoriety or hierarchy, money, glamour, in some cases, even success. That's right-handed strength. That, I would say, is a type of strength, for the most part, um, we're familiar with. It's, without question, the type of strength that Trump is familiar with. I'm, and again, I'm not, I'm not, it's just a simple statement. It's, it's a type of strength that's very common in today's world. It's right-handed strength. It's bold. It's audacious. It's just, just black and white. It's, it's a bold claim. It's, you know, one point to the next point. There's, there's no crooked lines. It's just one straight directive, and it's done. Right-handed strength. Um, but he distinguishes right-handed strength from what he says is left-handed power, right-handed power from left-handed power. And left-handed power is, is indirect. It's uh, non-forceful. It's oftentimes crooked, meaning it takes a lot of 90-degree turns or there are diagonal lines. It's not always straight. He describes it as oftentimes taking the shape or the form of humility, or love, or forgiveness, or even sacrificial service. Left-handed power, I think one of the most ex uh, profound examples of left-handed uh, left power of God at work in the Old Testament is in the life of a guy by the name of Joseph. Like, was God at work in Joseph's life? Absolutely. From the very beginning, which Joseph was betrayed by his own family, sold into slavery. I mean, imagine that. How many of you guys sold any of your siblings off to, you know, traffickers? Not a good thing to do. Well, that's exactly what happened to this guy, Joseph. His life gets sold by his own brothers. And, and then there's this crazy story that's made up about him saying that, oh, unfortunately, we found him dead. It's a total lie. And yet, fast forward, you know, some odd many, many years forward, decades forward, and you see Joseph at the, at the height, at the zenith of power. And this is all God's intention. And even Joseph, towards the end of his life, he says, look, Speaking to his brothers, like, you guys, you betrayed me. You meant this for evil. But God, God's bigger than you, fortunately. God's way bigger than all of you. God meant it for good. So what you guys were doing in my life for evil, God was behind the scenes working. He doesn't say it this way, but this would be what Luther would describe. God was working through left-handed power, an alternate plan, to take all your evil, all your wickedness, all your ill-advised intentions to somehow weave it together for something incredibly good. This is what God is up to. So what we see here in this idea, and there's all sorts of examples of, of right-handed power at work, of just God entering into the story and God wiping out his enemies or setting matters straight forward in just an instant or with a word. But oftentimes, we fail to see God's handiwork in our lives because we're oftentimes looking specifically only solely for right-handed power of God. But God is the God of both right hand and of left hand. This is how God always works. In fact, most of the times I would even suggest that most of the times the way that God works in our lives is through left-handed power, which means that the very circumstances that you and I may be going through and challenged by and, and stressed out by and finding ourselves going from point A to point B to point C to point D to point F, constantly wondering where is this road 
taking us. All of this is God just unpacking his left-handed power in our lives, through our lives, to demonstrate his, his goodness somehow, some way. But we haven't gotten to the end yet. Now again, remember, Jesus is not just walking into Jerusalem. He's on a triumphant march into Jerusalem. And again, if you're following the story in this posse with Jesus, you would, again, like I said, either be fearful or worried or emboldened, but you would definitely feel something because that's what's happening here in the story. But Jesus, again, we know, we know the story that within just a few short days, not only would he be betrayed, he would be brutally tortured and tormented and then put to death on a Roman cross. And it would look like, you understand, it would look like Jesus lost, would it not? But we know the rest of the story. So we sit here 2,000 years later reading backwards, and we see from, you know, from a different angle that all of these things that God was working together for good. But again, in the story, you would think that, oh my goodness, Jesus lost. He failed. He didn't do what he wanted to do. God, God did not bring forth whatever it is that God thought that he was going to bring forth. Jesus cannot be the king because kings don't get slaughtered. He cannot be the Messiah because dead messiahs are failed messiahs. There's no way that this is a victory. But Jesus marches into Jerusalem with this bold declaration that this is indeed a victory. And his people join him. So in closing, what does this mean for us? Or I should even say in another way, what can this mean for us? Because just as Jesus entered into the city, knowing what the city was going to represent, because again, just within a few short days, the very city which he was coming to save would actually turn on him, revolt against him, not only by way of the religious affiliation, but also by way of the political affiliation. They would conspire against him to put him to death in a brutal manner. But again, what God was doing behind the scenes was working, that all of this was all part of God's handiwork that was designed from the very beginning. This is, again, an example of God's left-handed power at work, taking what looks like failure and using it for victory, for success. So just like Jesus walks into the city knowing it's going to look like failure but will ultimately be a success, he rejoices. He's audaciously, boldly declaring his triumph even before the battle or the victory has been fought. So for those of us that follow Jesus, I think what this could look like is for each of us to think about what are those areas in our lives that look like failure, that look like tragedy, that look like difficulty, that look like hoping to get a raise, but not getting a raise, hoping to get a relationship or a promotion or a house or some sort of advancement, but not getting it, or it looks like failure, it looks like sickness, it looks like tragedy in the end, but in the midst of that, this may actually be all God shaping everything up to put on display, public display, his left-handed power in and through our lives. And if this is true, if this is the case, if this is indeed what's happening perhaps in our lives, this is one of the reasons why Paul later would write, we are more than conquerors 
in Christ. Why would Paul say that? Because Paul recognized my life, every follower of Jesus' life, we find ourselves not in our own independent stories of personal happiness and success. We find ourselves hijacked into a different story, a story that involves a God who sends his son into this world that looks like defeat over his entire plans. In reality, was nothing more than victory, left-handed victory of God. So for us, I think what this could look like is for us to think about what are those areas in our lives, perhaps, that feel like defeat, but in reality are being shaped up by way of left-hand power of God to bring about a victory that's beyond our comprehension. And if that's true, what areas ought we to be walking forth in profound triumph? You say, we haven't won the victory yet. But that's what it means to walk by faith, right? What it means to walk by faith is to exult in victory even before the battle has happened, even before the victory is yours, even before you get the house, even before you have the child, even before you get the job, even before you get whatever, even before the benefit or value or healing, whatever it is, comes to you. Walking by faith is not vapid optimism. It's not pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's not the sense of I can do positive attitude. It's the exact opposite. It's faith. And faith says I don't necessarily see how all these things will happen, but I know that this God is not only the power, the God of right-hand power, but he's also the God of left-hand power. That means that he is always at work, even in moments where it doesn't feel like he's at work, even in moments where it almost feel like abandonment. So we can actually walk into triumph and celebration, even though it may feel like it's defeat, even though the battle has not been fought, even though the victory has not been necessarily won in your circumstance now. Why? Because that's what it means to walk by faith. It means to trust God. It means to be invited into something that's bigger than our lives. That's the invitation that I leave you with to think about and to do business with God. As we go to the table, as we partake of the cup, as we eat the bread, and we remind ourselves that Jesus was crushed Think about this. Because some of you might be looking at your life right now and be like, I feel crushed. I feel oppressed. I feel forsaken. I feel forgotten. I feel abandoned. So did Jesus. Jesus knew all of these things were going to come upon him. And yet he walks audaciously, boldly into the city of Jerusalem as if he won. And he invites us into that same path. So, I don't know what it's for you in your life, but it's going to be different for every one of us. But for us to think about that, what are the areas in our lives, maybe right now, the best choice for any of us would be to boldly praise him for the victory that hasn't been won yet. (laughs) To praise him for the very thing that's going on in our life because he will come through. And even if he may not come through in the way that you might think he might come through, he will come through in a way that's best for us for his own glory, for his own power, for his own love. He is the God of both right-hand victories and the God of both left-hand victories. And we're invited to trust this God of both right and left-hand power. 
to do great things, but in the moment to praise him, to worship him. That's what worship is. You know, worship at the end of the day, it's not simply us coming to church and looking for an experience with God. It's us coming to gather with other people that are resurrection people. You know that's what you are, right? If you are a follower of Jesus, we are all part of the story. That's why it's important for us to gather regularly and consistently because we will always, as just normal, natural people in this life, drift from the storyline, drift from the plot line. So we need regular, constant, rhythmic intervals in which we are brought back into the story in which we belong to. That's what Sunday gatherings are all about. It's, it's a reminder we belong to this God of resurrection. We belong to this God that looked like defeat but had profound victory up his sleeve because he's a God of wisdom that's beyond our comprehension. He's a God that's worthy of being trusted. So I don't know what's like for you or the circumstances that you're going through, but you're invited now to worship, to praise him. So why don't we all stand as we finish? I'll pray. We'll have some people at the front that would love to pray with you. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we would love to pray with you. Or if you are a follower of Jesus and there's circumstances that are going on in your life right now, you just feel like you need prayer for those circumstances, we want to take time to pray for you because whatever it is that you're going through, we have a God that doesn't pull away from us, but he draws, draws near to us for one reason. He loves you. And it's not just this emotion that God has for you, this feeling that God has towards you. It's this radical commitment, devotion that God has for us. That's what the cross is. So I'm going to pray, and we will sing. We'll respond by way of singing, by way of praying, by way of partaking of the communion. And how about you guys, all of us? Let's respond by lifting up our voices and praising our way through the challenges, through the tough times, through the multiple turns and crooked pathways that we find ourselves in because somewhere along that way is God's power. Perhaps a left-handed power, but God's power nonetheless. Let's praise him for that. So God, thank you for your love, your kindness, your goodness. And God, we together as a community just recognize our need for you. So we lift up our voices even right now, God, and we just say thank you.